This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, December 10th, 2016. Episode 34, How Battle Abbey Lost Its Divine Favor and the Death of Two Abbots. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. This episode, we're still hanging out at Battle Abbey, slowly wearing out our welcome as holiday guests. Last time, we heard about the relatively distinguished career of Abbot Warner, which was marked in part by his successful management of the Abbey's relationship to the bishop. Today, we're going to move into events of the Abbacy of Warner's successor, another W, a man named Walter de Lucy. Walter looms large over the Abbey's 12th century history with a particularly long reign of 32 years. His halo is also polished up somewhat by his distinguished lineage. His brother Richard de Lucy was an important figure in the court of Henry II, who made him chief justiciar of England, which at the time was the position of right-hand man. Uh, or to indulge in the uh, all-too-predictable Game of Thrones references that bedevil anyone trying to talk about medieval matters these days, but what the heck, the chief justiciar is basically the same idea as the king's hand. You know, chief of staff mixed in with prime minister. Richard de Lucy makes a cameo appearance in our selection for today, but primarily we're focusing on Walter. That said, one of the reasons why Walter is a particularly powerful and important abbot is because of the influence he has with the king through his brother. In fact, one of the longest narrative episodes in the Chronicle of Battle Abbey features this relationship quite prominently. This is an account of the legal dispute between that next generation of abbots and bishops from the pair we heard about last episode, so Abbot Walter, who succeeded Abbot Warner, and Hilary, the Bishop of Chichester, who succeeded Siegfried, the bishop whose men were the troublesome guests from last time. It's the same story it always is. The bishop wants to claim rights over the abbey that the abbey wants to keep to itself. The case goes all the way to the king, and the chronicle gives us some dramatized scenes of the speeches made by the litigants, including addresses made by Richard de Lucy in support of his brother, and by future celebrity martyr Thomas Becket, who at the time was King Henry's chancellor. It's kind of a shame that the details of the case don't ever quite get interesting enough to really pass the bar for us to use in this show. Though, who knows what the future holds. Uh, I don't feel like I'm in any danger of running short on material, but knock on wood. Anyway, uh, it's a shame because this courtroom drama, and others like it in other monastic chronicles, are some of the places where the storytelling becomes most novelistic. Because the argument and legal points really matter, the chroniclers tend to present them in real play-by-play -play detail, reconstructing, or in some, maybe even many cases, inventing the speeches and arguments. You often get a good sense of scene and of gesture and of emotional as well as legal stakes for those whose rights are involved. It can be surprisingly gripping, especially if you've gotten used to the more laconic style of chronicle writing where several years or even entire careers might be breezed over in the span of a sentence. These remind me of the trial scenes and all-thing debates that you get in many of the Icelandic family sagas, though the sagas tend to stick to that level of detail and scene staging for longer stretches, and for a greater variety of events than Monastic Chronicles do. Anyway, we actually get a little bit of both modes in our text for today. It starts in the more typical summary mode, as the chronicler is wrapping up his account of Walter's abbacy. It starts out on a negative note, 
with a story about how the uncharitable behavior of some of the Abbey monks caused God to turn away from the Abbey. The chronicler basically, just by omission, excuses Walter from any responsibility for this, uh, and the next part of the passage is the typical eulogy for a good abbot, with all the usual virtues cited. But then the chronicler shifts into more immediate narration to show us the death of Walter in a more extended, detailed, and startlingly naturalistic scene. We'll talk a bit more about death scenes after the text. So without further ado, the end of Abbot Walter's abbacy from the Chronicle of Battle Abbey as translated by Mark Antony Lauer with some minor emendations derived from Eleanor Searle's scholarly edition. In Abbot Walter's days, moreover, the Lord vouchsafed to visit the Abbey of Battle, and in order to show forth the merits of his blessed confessor St. Martin, made the place resplendent with frequent miracles. Then came thither a great multitude of both sexes, both for penance and the remission of their sins, and for the healing of their diseases. Out of those who thus came, some, suddenly falling down, wallowed upon the earth, and were by some secret judgment of God miserably tormented. Others who were present, and were not subject to the same pains and contortions, began unreasonably to scorn these divine manifestations as if they were not of God, and having in them neither piety nor any bowels of compassion, insolently derided the sufferings of their friends, whom, out of regard to the common frailty of human nature, they ought to have compassionated. Provoked by this, and by the unworthy lives of some of the inhabitants, the Lord waxed angry against these ungrateful people, and withdrew this favor from them as undeserving of it. He revealed to one of the faithful in a vision his intention to have glorified the place before men, and his determination to change his design and to withdraw his vouchsafed favor in consequence of the great impiety of some who dwelt there. What then shall we say of these things? It rather becomes us to bewail than to speak of them. Alas, alas, how great is the unhappiness of men who betray such ingratitude for divine manifestations and neglect to pay the service of a becoming homage to their Creator. From this it is beyond question that, as they undeservedly receive many things from God, so they lose innumerable favors through their ingratitude. But still, the Lord, who is kind and merciful and of great compassion, did not utterly withdraw the granted favor, but at his pleasure transferred it. He transferred it, indeed, from the mother to the daughter, that is to say, from the Abbey of the Blessed Martin of Battle to the Church of St. Nicholas in the city of Exeter, which is its cell, and which was at that time in a state of dejection. For the church there, before the building had been fully completed, was, by a second and sudden fire in the town, reduced to a ruin. The glory of the Lord, then, was manifested in signs and miracles, which rendered famous not only the place itself, but other parts of the kingdom where its monks or clerics came to preach. As these miracles increased, the name of the blessed Nicholas was spread abroad in all directions, and the place began to be frequented by the faithful of both sexes and of every age, creed, and rank, 
who brought together so much gain as sufficed not merely to rebuild the church destroyed by the recent fire, but also to construct handsome buildings for the residents of the brethren who dwelt there in charge of it. By the grace of God, the Abbey of St. Martin of Battle was not in these things altogether disappointed, since the honor of the daughter is the glory of the mother. O happy places and times which the mercy of God hath thus visited! Many, indeed, are the noble acts of the venerable Abbot Walter with which we are acquainted, but not wishing to burden our readers or hearers with too much prolixity, we shall, for the rest, adhere to brevity, and unfold to the prudent reader many things which may be easily understood in few words. In the execution of the pastoral office, his manner was such that, to the disobedient and irregular, he showed himself rigid and severe, while to the meek and obedient he was ever placable and kind. With great pity towards the poor, he allayed their hunger with food and covered their nakedness with raiment. He especially compassionated the forlorn condition of those afflicted with leprosy and elephantiasis, whom he was so far from shunning that he frequently waited upon them in person, washing their hands and feet, and with the utmost cordiality imprinting upon them the soothing kisses of love and piety. On no account would he suffer the dignities and liberties of his abbey to be diminished, nor its goods and possessions to be withdrawn or wasted through negligence. The charge of those possessions he committed to others in such a manner as that he himself had the superintendence of the whole. The abbey itself, whose government he had undertaken in unprosperous times, he protected from the violence of its adversaries with all his might, and those things of which it had been despoiled he manfully recovered in the subsequent season of tranquility. In the early days of his promotion, he was unable to devote anything to hospitality, as the means were wanting, for adversaries had seized nearly all that belonged to the monastery, so that there was scarcely sufficient left for the bare sustenance of the brethren. In more peaceful times, when he had, with great exertion and expense, recovered the most part of what had been taken away, he effected a great reformation in the house, and restored old and proper customs, so that whomsoever knocked, a door was opened and no one who sought entertainment suffered a repulse. And thus the duties of humanity were exercised according to the dignity or condition of the applicants. Not trusting to others in matters of business rather than to himself, he paid frequent visits of inspection to the abbatial manors, and there caused edifices fit for the reception of the powerful and noble to be erected. These manors being situated in various and distant localities, the sheriffs and other powerful men of the several districts sought to vex both himself and the tenants of the abbey by their unjust claims, expecting to receive gifts for the restoration of their goods and liberties. But he, devoid of fear as to all these things, was resolved not to satisfy their cupidity, for he so enjoyed the king's goodwill, through which he could obtain everything he desired, that he restrained those who entertained the wish to molest him from the power of doing so, and they were thus disappointed of the hope of obtaining any reward from him. He took great delight also in the beauty of God's house, and adorned his monastery with such paws, casuli, capi, albs, dalmatics, tunics, tapestries, banners, and such a great variety of ornaments as none of his predecessors had ever done the like. The cloister, which at the first erection of the abbey had been but meanly built, he pulled down and erected another of marble slabs and columns of smooth and polished workmanship. When this was finished, he intended to construct a lavatorium of the same material and workmanship, and had even engaged the workmen when his death took place. But although he was unable to finish it, 
he left the necessary funds for its completion. And when from these promising blossoms a fruitful crop was anticipated, on a sudden all hope was cut off, and this venerable man was taken from the midst. Though his lower extremities were half dead, and he had for many years labored under continual ill health, yet he never indulged himself, but constantly stood forth against every adversary in defense of the abbey committed to his charge. At length, going to the abbatial manor of Wye for the purpose of visiting it, he began on a sudden to grow worse. His weakness daily increasing, he sent for Clarenbald, abbot of the neighboring monastery of Faversham, a venerable personage of great sanctity in those parts, to confer with him concerning his soul's health and to do penance for the excesses of which he had been guilty in this present life. For there is no man that liveth and sinneth not. Thus, frequently receiving the sacrament of the body and blood of the Lord, he gave orders to the prior of his abbey with certain brothers to come to him without delay. In obedience to this command, the prior, attended by the brethren, came, and the abbot diligently conferred with him also about the health of his soul, and begged pardon both of him and of the brethren with him for any injuries he might have done them, either deservedly or not, first forgiving them the like offenses against himself. The prior and the brethren, acting on behalf of the whole convent, forgave him all things and blessed him in the name of all. He, in return, with paternal love, blessed them, and relaxed such sentences as he had upon any occasion laid upon any of the brethren, and, by the pastoral office which he held, absolved them all. As he was daily growing weaker, his illustrious brother, Richard de Lucy, came to see him, and he, judging by his sight and his speech, seeing no hope of his recovery, advised his speedy removal to his abbey. Lest anything which ecclesiastical custom holds requisite should be wanting to him, now that his end was approaching, his mind and understanding being meanwhile perfectly sound and he calling upon God, he was anointed, and being thus laid upon a litter, was conveyed by horses to battle. On his arrival there, he had entirely lost his voice, and his breath scarcely stirred within his bosom. His sons ran sorrowfully to meet him, to see their father more than half dead and just departing, but not to enjoy his conversation. Everyone kissed him as he lay awaiting the unknown hour, for the day of his future existence seemed to dawn, and fortified him for his departure with their prayerful devotions. Yet he lived through the night, and then the following day, struggling merely to breathe. A second night had darkened the earth, when all those about him thought him about to die shortly. He was therefore carried with all possible haste into the chapter house, there, according to the custom of the abbey, to breathe out his spirit. He was laid upon the sackcloth and ashes there made ready, when, on a sudden, he began to move all his limbs, which before had seemed dead, and also his lips, as if for the purpose of speaking. At this all the brethren were excited, and those who were standing nearest to him applied their ears to his mouth. But, as there was no word uttered, but only a kind of hissing, they were unable to understand anything of what he desired to say. The night was wearing away, and daylight was breaking, when he yielded up his soul into the hands and will of his Creator, while the brethren standing around commended the departing one with devout prayers to the Lord. His exequies were becomingly celebrated for two days, and then the dust was returned to the dust out of which it was taken, and he was buried before the larger crucifix and the altar of the cross of the crucified. He was gathered to his fathers in the thirty-third year of his promotion, 
on the 11th of the Kalends of July, in the year of our Lord's Incarnation, 1171. So, there we have the death of Abbot Walter. This is one of those scenes, relatively rare scenes, where I feel all these layers of artifice and rhetorical convention falling away for a brief moment of almost pure reportage of those final few hours of Walter's life. Maybe it's because it's such a specific description of a real phenomenon that usually isn't featured in conventional depictions of death. This thing that sometimes does happen where the dying person... Uh, who may have been semi-comatose before, suddenly begins to struggle and thrash. And we have a scene of that here, along with a version of the so-called death rattle. I had read this chronicle shortly before my paternal grandmother died. And when I was home for the funeral, my mother described what my grandmother's last hours were like. And as I listened, I was thinking, I just read this. Some of these same moments that had made such a strong impression on my mother clearly had made a similar impression on the author of this chronicle 600 years earlier. We don't really know anything about the author of the Chronicle of Battle Abbey, except that there were almost certainly two different texts from two different people which have been welded together at some point. But it is generally accepted that one of these writers had been a monk of the Abbey during Walter's abbacy. Uh, indeed, Eleanor Searle argues that he was probably trained in canon law and is responsible for the extensive narration of the legal case that I mentioned earlier, quite possibly having been a participant in it. So it's very likely that the writer of this scene of Walter's death was an eyewitness to it. It's a strangely disarmed moment, I think, for the chronicler. There's a certain incongruity between the virtue of Walter's life and how well prepared for death he is, spiritually and psychologically, and that actual moment of death, which is clearly deeply upsetting to so many of the Abbey community crowded around him. He does not go out as the Venerable Bede famously did in nearly idyllic peacefulness singing joyous psalms. There's a kind of violence here that is unreconciled with the broader theme of Walter's life, um, not even by the conventional gestures historians and hagiographers often make, uh, for how a saintly person might be purified through a more painful death, or that this demonstrates their humility or endurance or Job-like faith through their final suffering. Here, it just sits there as a description of what happened, and then we're back into the more normal stream of history as Walter is reverentially buried and praised and memorialized. I want to share one other death scene from the Chronicle from a bit earlier in the text. This is the death of Abbot Ralph. Uh, this is the death that left the extended vacancy, which was finally filled by the election of Abbot Warner, the event that kicked off our previous episode. While Ralph's death is what we're going to focus on, I'm going to go ahead and include the little eulogy of Ralph which precedes it and lays out his virtues, um, just because I think it's a nice bit of writing, with some great examples of classical rhetorical antithesis and balanced compound sentences, and it also serves as another demonstration of how portraits of monastic virtue tend to reduce to the same core tropes. You basically could write one description of the good abbot 
and then just keep reusing it, which is exactly what some chroniclers and hagiographers did, with little tweaks of emphasis. So maybe an abbot who in life was a bit more secularly minded might have his praise focused on how capable an administrator and defender of the abbey's property he was, whereas a less savvy but more devout abbot will have more attention paid to his role as a spiritual father, but generally the same four or five notes are going to be sounded. Some might just ring out a bit more loudly than others, from person to person. But anyway, here's a brief summary of the accomplishments, character, and death of Abbot Ralph. Thus, under the venerable Abbot Ralph, did the abbey increase and prosper in every way, both within and without, so that in point of religion and hospitality, to say nothing of other virtues, it was accounted inferior to none. And this venerable man, delighting in the beauty of God's house, caused the church to be roofed with lead, and completed what was unfinished of the circuit of the walls. He enlarged the space of the abbey and enriched it with new buildings. He also devoted himself entirely, with the aid of his friends, in many ways to decorate the house in the best fashion, and with such various ornaments as the honor of God demanded. And besides this watchfulness over things external, neither tongue nor pen can tell with what zeal he sought the salvation of souls. It will not therefore be out of place to record some few things regarding him, although to recite all, no language would suffice. Although he continually governed those who were under his authority, yet he himself was subservient to rules and commanded no one as a master. He sustained the infirmities of others and called them forth to strength. His acts corresponded with what he taught. His example preceded his doctrine. He inculcated a prompt attendance upon divine service and supporting his aged limbs upon his staff preceded the young men to it. Ever first at the choir, he was uniformly the last to quit it. Thus he was a pattern of good works, a Martha and a Mary. He was the serpent and the dove. He was a Noah amidst the waters. While he never willingly rejected the raven, he always gladly received the dove. He governed the clean and the unclean, a prudent ruler under all circumstances. He knew both how to bear with Ham and how to bestow his blessing upon Shem and Japheth. Like a prudent husbandman, he caused the occupied lands to be promptly cultured, and those that lay waste to be added in, and by this means increased their yearly value by the sum of twenty pounds. Meanwhile, he overlooked not the spiritual husbandry, tilling earthly hearts with the plowshares of good doctrine in many books which he wrote, stimulating them thereby to bear the fruit of good works, and although his style was homely, yet it was rich in the way of morality. In the sparingness of his food he was a Daniel, in the sufferings of his body a Job, in the bending of his knees a Bartholomew, bending them full often in supplication, though he could scarcely move them in walking. Every day he sang through the whole Psalter in order, hardly ceasing from his genuflections and his psalmody three days previously to his death. Neither his racking cough, nor his vomiting of blood, nor his advanced age, nor the attenuation of his flesh to almost mere skin availed to daunt this man, nor to turn him aside from any purpose of his elevated piety. But lo, after many agonies and bodily sufferings, when he was eighty-four years of age, and had been among sixty years and thirty-six days, and when he had flourished as abbot of battle seventeen years and twenty days, 
the householder summoned him to the reward of his day's penny. It was on the 4th of the Calends of September, in the evening of the day, that this holy, sweet, and humble father departed. He was lying upon his lowly couch after partaking of a little food, and had devoutly blessed several of the brethren and desired that others would come to him, when he was suddenly seized with a vomiting of blood more violent than usual, accompanied with portions of his lungs torn to pieces by his long-continued cough, and the cough coming on at the same time so tossed and tormented him as to take away his life. The brethren came running together with great lamentations and many tears, and devoutly commended his departing spirit to the hands of that Creator to whom it was returning. They afterwards committed his body to honorable sepulture within the church of Battle Abbey, in the north transept before the altar of the apostles. So that's another upsetting death of a profoundly virtuous man. Now, for neither Walter nor Ralph is this an untimely death. These are both deaths due, essentially, to old age. Walter was anywhere from 68 to 80. The precise year of his birth is unclear. And Ralph, the chronicler tells us, was 84. Now, there are a lot of misconceptions surrounding medieval life expectancy, and so you get modern jokes about a medieval peasant turning 30 and being hailed as an elderly man and that kind of thing. Of course, this is nonsense. You might not have had a great number of people living into their 70s and 80s, but it certainly happened, and people saw actual elderly people in their communities. So even if many people did die relatively young, that didn't fundamentally warp the conception of old age. Indeed, the encyclopedist Isidore of Seville says that adulthood runs from ages 28 to 50, and then there's a period after that of dignity, or Latin gravitas, and then only at age 70 does one actually enter old age, or senectus. And there's debate among the medieval physicians and philosophers over what the maximum lifespan of a human being is. But they agree that there is such a thing as a natural death, meaning a death not due to injury or disease, but simply due to life having run its course, and this usually happens around the age of 80. The most common mechanism proposed for such a death, drawing on theories of the bodily humors and Aristotelian natural philosophy as applied to medicine via Avicenna, was that the human body is comprised of a mixture of heat and moisture, which are contraries, and thus as life goes on, the heat is either drying out or using up as a kind of fuel, that available moisture, and once that innate moisture is gone, then the flame of life too burns out, or can be easily extinguished by very minor stresses. Basically, your body starts out at birth with a predetermined ratio of hot to wet, and eventually you're just going to run out of gas, resulting in this so-called natural death. Now, the philosophers in the Aristotelian tradition argued that a true natural death was pleasant and painless, a gentle passing away. Some of the 12th and 13th century physicians disagreed, perhaps based on what they'd witnessed themselves in practice, and said that even in a natural death, the separation of the soul from the body could be a moment of violence and agony. The texts on these ideas are all coming into Western Europe right here at the end of the 12th century when our chronicler is writing, so it's not at all clear just what perspective on what death should be like he may have had. And you have this conflicting set of traditions, where on the one hand, something that is natural and good ought to be pleasant and peaceful and harmonious, 
and on the other, where virtue is tested and revealed through ordeal and adversity. So we're left with a kind of perfectly flexible system where you can plausibly render either kind of death as a good and fitting death for a virtuous person. But still, I think both of these scenes in the Chronicle of Battle Abbey are interesting because the specific details of the pain of death are not overtly moralized. They still bear, to my eyes at least, traces of the trauma that stayed with those who witnessed these passings. I think they're very human scenes in the midst of paeons that try to elevate these same men to nearly superhuman levels of ecclesiastical heroism. Anyway, after all this death talk, let's rewind back to the beginning of today's text to end on a more positive note. I actually picked this text out and put it on the schedule right after the election, because I think it has a rather surprising message of inclusivity, uh, surprising in a medieval context at least, uh, that seemed important at the time. And now a month later, I don't know, it feels like most of us have moved on into a different stage of grief or disbelief or exhaustion uh, than we were in early November. Uh, even if your reaction was celebration, I think that emotion can only have gotten more complex as time has passed. So now I don't really know if this has any smidgen of the balm effect I'd felt in it uh, originally, but hey, it's worth a shot. We don't usually look to the Middle Ages for messages of inclusivity and empathy. Indeed, if we say now that someone's opinions or positions are medieval, we're usually using that as synonymous with regressive. And of course, there are perfectly good reasons for that, and I don't want to overinflate what is more like a flicker in the darkness that we have in this passage. But it just struck me as particularly resonant that we have this interpretation from our chronicler, this moral judgment that the powerful and prosperous Battle Abbey, divinely destined for greatness, loses that destiny. God actually changes his mind, and I don't know how that fits in with more rigorous theology about providence and omniscience. Uh, it seems a little tricky, to say the least. Uh, but anyway, God deprives Battle Abbey of its heavenly favor because some of the monks or servants of the Abbey sneered at and mocked the weak and infirm, who thought it was ruining the quality of the Abbey to have to see such grotesque pilgrims and supplicants allowed inside it. And who does he transfer that favor to? the Church of St. Nicholas, whose doors are open to, quote, the faithful of both sexes and of every age, creed, and rank. Now, of course, as much as we might want to see an egalitarian vision here, this inclusivity is qualified by the label, the faithful. It's inclusive after some major exclusions. So we have to qualify that, much like you can selectively paint a seemingly rosy picture of medieval democracy once you set aside the incredibly narrow set of people actually allowed to participate in it. I don't want to get preachy or partisan, but I did just want to note the unusual nature of a moment where we might turn to a medieval text for a stronger message of openness and empathy than we're hearing from inhabitants of 21st century America, and Europe, and Asia, and Oceania, and a little bit of everywhere, really. Okay, on a lighter note, let's answer our Thanksgiving riddle from last episode. It was one of the claret riddles, riddle 58 in fact, and it went, I have a little pig, and the more corn I throw to him, the more noise he makes. The answer is, that's the sound of the mill when it's full, and a bolter's your answer. Uh, the bolter, as I understand it, is a piece of apparatus involved in sifting the flour that's been ground, 
uh, and its action, perhaps along with the grinding of the millstones themselves, creates the pig-grunting noises that are being described in the riddle. This riddle actually has an extended lifespan. A version of it was recorded in North Carolina by the folklorist Elsie Clues Parsons in 1917. Uh, that version goes, The hog under the hill, the more corn you give her, the more she squeal. And the answer is gristmill. And with our riddle solved, that means it's time to introduce a new medieval mystery word. Our new word is hingotberther. That's hingotberther. This one comes from a language we haven't yet featured. So if you have any guesses, or if you just know this one outright, uh, which is possible, I didn't find any direct descendants of this word in modern languages, um, but I very easily could have overlooked something, uh, just one unexpected vowel change, and I could easily have missed it in the dictionaries I searched through. Uh, anyway, you can offer your definitions on Twitter or in the comments on the episode on our website. You can tweet to us at mdtpodcast, and the website is medievaldeathtrip.com, where you can find more information on and references for this and every episode. Uh, and you can also email me there at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. I'll be back with the answer to our mystery word next episode in a little less than two weeks. We're going to be celebrating the solstice for that one. So get ready for a whole cornucopia of astronomical anomalies and meteorological marvels. But until then, take care and thanks for listening.